Uh, Judge, the scripture reading for today is taken from Psalm 143. So you could turn, refer to your Bibles, or you could refer to the e-bulletin on the third page. Psalm 143, we're reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. For, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies. And you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. For I am your servant. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me right now as I open with prayer? Father, you are great and you are greatly to be praised. Your greatness is unsearchable. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, as we look out in beautiful creation all around us, Lord, we are astounded that you are mindful of us that your eye sees us, Lord, that you think on us, and Lord, that we have value and significance to you. Lord, you have appointed in your church, Lord, people of different giftings such that your body may be equipped for the work of ministry so that we come into a unity of faith, so that we come to maturity in faith, our Lord, so that we are not pulled to and fro by every false doctrine, and by every difficult season also. And so, Lord, we come to you now humbly, asking, O oh God, that you would, in a fresh way, teach us to pray. We commit this time to you. I commit the preaching of the word and the listening of the word to you, Almighty Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verses 1 to 8 For everything there is a season 
and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. The scriptures tell us that God is behind every time and every season. And for Agape Baptist Church, this is an immensely difficult time. Now, some of us have lost our jobs. Some of our businesses are going under. Those of us in the aviation, tourism, and restaurant industries, particularly among others, have also been uh, very hardly hit. Uh, those, of you, those of us who are medical or government workers and you're working hard like never before. Uh, many of us don't know how to plan and to manage our work uh, because of the rapid changes that are happening. Uh, for us, on Tuesday afternoon, the staff team, we sat together, spent a good three, four hours and we tried to put a plan in place for today's Sunday service. But by that very evening, a new directive had come out and our plan was made completely irrelevant. For all of us who can identify, we are facing a strong sense of frustration and futility. Socially, the distancing may be affecting many of you. Uh, if you're a student, perhaps, you know, many of us don't think much has changed for you. You're still going to school. But I got to hear about the strict distancing uh, uh, practices that have been put in place. And uh, now you have to spend recess more or less alone unable to properly uh, connect with others because you're so far apart. Club activities have been cancelled and that means there's even less connections with your friends. Some of us feel the same at work. Some of us are elderly persons staying at home alone. Some of us are stuck uh, with family members that you don't like or family members who don't know how to connect meaningfully. Some of us are stuck in Singapore while our family and friends are overseas. And this is going to feel like an incredibly isolated period for all of us. And yes, we can st still keep in contact online, but nothing really can replace human touch and close proximity with one another. And so I think we are also facing a strong sense of isolation and loneliness. By the grace of God, though, no Agapian has officially contracted COVID-19 thus far. But I believe the virus has come very close, uncomfortably close to many of us. Maybe someone in your estate has contracted the virus. Maybe someone in the building in which you work. Someone at your workplace. Some of us have already made second degree contact with the virus where you were with someone who is close to an infected person. A few of us have also had first degree contact. Someone you were with tested positively for the virus and now perhaps you're serving a stay home notice. Now with the numbers of infected already passing the 800 mark, there is a sense that it's just going to be a matter of time before the virus will hit our friends, our families, and perhaps even ourselves. 
already now some of us probably are convinced that we are asymptomatic carriers of the virus at this point. And so there's a strong sense of fearful inevitability and anxiety as well. On a personal note, Crystal and I don't, don't know how to move forward with our wedding planning. Uh, among various difficulties, my brother and his family is, uh, are currently uh, stuck in Tasmania. Uh, we cannot be sure if they'll be able to make it for our wedding at all. So Crystal and I have had to have many tough conversations about what our non-negotiables are for our wedding. And I know of at least another five couples who are going through a far more difficult time uh, planning for their wedding because all their weddings are occurring at a much earlier time than mine and Crystal's. Two of those couples, they worship here in Agape. And it's a difficult time. But what I find to be most painful about such a time like this is what's happening with our churches. Overnight, it feels like God has stripped away a whole bunch of graces. The grace of community, that's a big one. Uh, we can no longer physically comfort and encourage one another, especially those of us who belong to bigger cell groups. We can't lay hands and pray for one another. We can't hug one another and so share in one another's grief. The grace of singing is another one that we will surely miss. Suddenly, we're not able to sing together and to have our spirits lifted as we hear the swell of voices rising around us and then to hear your own voice blending in as well. We can no longer see the different postures of worship, the raised hands, the bowed heads, the weepy eyes, the faces filled with adoration and transfixed on our Lord Jesus. The grace of taking the communion and gathering together around the Lord's table as one spiritual family has also been removed at this time. We're not going to take the communion. We're not going to hear Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, resounding all around us until we are once again physically reunited. The Bible tells us there is a time for everything. And God has ordained that this be a time of mourning rather than rejoicing and for tears rather than laughter, a time for wounding rather than healing. And this is a, a difficult time. But it is in such a time that our God is gathering us together to pray. Now, this is a sense that he's been placing on my heart since early last week. And so last Sunday, after I had finished preaching, Pastor GL spoke with me and with Pastor Tu, and he asked us what we thought about moving into a more season-specific sermon series. One of the main things he said about this new sermon series is that the sermons would call people to pray, but unknown to him, God had been leading me on my knees day after day this past week and beyond praying and weeping for us as a church. And this is the closest I've come in my life perhaps to fulfilling the biblical command to pray without ceasing. And so when Pastor Jia looked at me on that Sunday and he, and he said, you know, how, Pastor Nan, do you think you can handle delivering two completely new sermons? I was totally on board. It wasn't a matter of whether I could handle changing my sermons altogether, but it was this sense, this agreement in my soul that prayer is precisely the hard labor to which God is calling us to at this time. Immediately, I had this sense that we need to draw near to God and like his disciples to plead with him, Lord, teach us how to pray. And so after I left Dorset, I started asking God, what, what should I preach about? Where should I preach from? And God led me to this passage 
in Psalm 143. You see, Psalm 143, it shows us something about prayer that somehow has gone missing today. Some of us, you know, when I, if I were to ask you, you would say prayer is simply talking to God. Some of us would say prayer is a spiritual di discipline. Now, all these things are true, but yet they miss the fundamental nature of prayer. Prayer is fundamentally a cry for mercy. Prayer is fundamentally a cry for mercy. Now, what is mercy? Mercy is seeking God's favor by appealing to His pity. What this means is that at the heart of prayer is a sense of desperation. It's a sense of helplessness. It's a sense of, I can never make it on my own. It takes a powerful God, a great God, to get me through this. And this is why in the darkest times, even atheists, people who say they don't believe in God, can look up to the heavens and say, if you are there, if you can hear me, save me. And today, all across the world, not just in Singapore, all across the world, people are lifting their voices in prayer. They are crying out for divine favor and pity. Now, not everyone is crying out to the Christian God, but even so, such global prayer is a sign of how God has humbled an entire world in a matter of days. We need to pray. Today's passage is a psalm written by David, and though it is a psalm, you know, a poem, a song, but as the first line tells us, it is first and foremost a prayer. So as we approach the passage today, I want, I want us to ask this question. How is God teaching us to pray? And here are the five dimensions I'm going to be looking at. The first is honesty. The second is remembrance. The third is desperation. The fourth is assertion. And finally, submission. Now, these are just helpful headers to divide David's prayer into smaller chunks. As we go from point to point, I want to give us a principle about prayer. And I'll also supplement that principle with a truth later on in my explanation. So I hope we've all, all already gotten out our physical Bibles in front of us and that you've already opened up to Psalm 143. If you have not, uh, I'm just going to pause for a moment so that you can run whichever direction it is uh, to go and get your Bibles and join us again. So please do that now. All right, let's continue. We want to take a look at the first dimension of prayer. And this is honesty. And here we see in verses 1 to 4 that prayer is founded on good news. Prayer is founded on good news. I'm going to read verses 1 to 2 right now so you can follow with me from your Bibles. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Now, as we read the first, these two verses, we see David's boldness. Here is David almost demanding attention from God. Hear my prayer. Give ear to me. Answer me. It is like David is giving God a set of instructions through his prayer. And that immediately shows us what honesty, what authenticity David brings to God in his prayer. 
There's no fake sense of religiosity, no uh, false piety. There's no sense of trying to butter up or flatter God. David must be in a lot of trouble. And he honestly, he honestly wants to bring his burdens before God. But even in his honesty, David remains very aware of how he is a sinner and how holy God is. David is admitting his own unworthiness. Nothing about him earns him the right to an audience with El Elyon, the Lord Most High. Nothing about him awards him the attention of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord over heaven's angelic hosts and the armies of the earth. King David could have sacrificed all the men, all the women, all the children, all the animals of his kingdom, and it would not have even caused a twitch in the year of El Shaddai, the Lord Omnipotent. And so David doesn't appeal to how faithful he has been to God. David doesn't demand an audience with God because he has been so righteous. No, David instead says, God, listen to me because you are faithful. And because you are faithful, I know you will hear my cry. And then he says, Lord, hear my cry because you are righteous. And I know that your righteousness means that you would bow your ears to me in my weakness and affliction. David comes before God with such honesty. Honesty in what he needs from God. Honesty in how unworthy he is before God. Honesty in how God's character is his only hope. But as we come to verse 2, this honesty begins to sound a little rude. David says to God, Enter not into judgment with me, for no one living is righteous before you. Now we look at this and we wonder what's wrong with this. David is essentially saying to God, God, put aside your righteousness. Put aside your requirement for me to be righteous and holy. Come down from your throne of judgment. Come down to where I am. Come down to where I am, where all man mankind is sinful and unworthy in your eyes. Come down here. Now that's what he's saying to God, but how dare he talk to God like that? Now we need to go back to verse 1 to understand this. In verse 1, David calls upon God using his covenantal name, Yahweh. Yahweh is the name of God who has personally revealed himself to the people of Israel. David is not simply addressing his God or a God of his own fancy. He's approaching the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Samuel the prophet who appointed him as king, the God of Jonathan, his closest friend in the world. And David knows that Yahweh isn't a heartless, achievement-oriented God. He knows Yahweh has a tendency. He's the kind of God who chooses the least, the weak, the poor, the foolish. And so David is able to be honest and free before God because David understands that with Yahweh, relationship comes before obedience. Relationship comes before obedience. And so you might be a new Christian, and you're fearful during this COVID-19 season, but you don't dare pray because you're afraid you might say the wrong things before God. I want you to hear this. Do not be afraid. You are in relationship with God. You might be a more mature Christian and you're also fearful, but you've been soothing your fears with pornography and you feel unworthy. You feel you have no right to call upon God in prayer. I want you to hear this also. Have no fear. Do not be afraid. You are in relationship with God. And I want to tell you this relationship we have with God, it is not just a personal me and God kind of relationship. This is 
our God. He is our God. And so if you know you should be praying, but you just don't have that faith, you, don't, you, don't, you have not seen God's faithfulness working out in your own life in a personal way, then I encourage you, look beyond yourself. Find out about our family history. Find out about church history. Find out how God has answered specific prayers. How before COVID-19, how God saw His church through other outbreaks. Connect deeply with other Agapians, especially those who have enjoyed a longer relationship with God. Find out more about their journey of faith. You know, this past week, my dad turned 67. Do you know how many near-death experiences he's had? Do you know how many turbulent times he survived? Do you know how his own dad almost got beheaded by uh, a Malayan communist? You know how many times God has provided for him and his family? Do you know how many of his prayers God has answered? Do you know how his family ridiculed and mocked him when he became a Christian? And then they themselves started coming to faith one by one. Now this is why community is so important. Community is filled with our stories and these stories fuel faith and faith promotes prayer. We are a covenant people in covenant with Yahweh, the covenantal God. And in covenant, everything is built upon relationship. And David knows this. And so after his apparent disrespect in verse 2, he now spills his heart out in verse 3. He's in trouble. The enemy is pursuing him, chasing him to the point of death. The enemy has crushed him to the ground. They have removed every help and support from him. The enemy has left him in the dark. He is cut off, forgotten, alone, uncared for by anyone. And so David cries out, my spirit faints. He has no energy left. He is at the end of himself. His heart is appalled. He is stunned, horrified. He is devastated by what has happened. And he just does not know how to respond. The reason why David pours out his heart in all honesty is because sinner though he is, he knows he is accepted by his covenantal God. In the New Testament, this principle still holds true. Hebrews 4.16 tells us, let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now there's a kind of paradox here, isn't there? You're coming before the throne in confidence and yet that throne is a throne of grace. Right? Confidence speaks of boldness, certainty, assurance. Yet grace is unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. And so grace should make us humble. But how do confidence and humility go together? It's only at the cross. When Jesus took our place for us, both in sin and in righteousness, we were reconciled to God. The relationship with God has been restored. And so what that means is that even while God is El Elyon, the Lord Most High, while He is Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, and while He is El Shaddai, the Lord Almighty, we get to approach Him as Abba Father. And so we are invited in times of need, just like this virus season, to draw near in prayer, to receive mercy, and to find grace. So don't let anything stop you. Your heavenly Father is waiting for you. Draw near to Him with all honesty in prayer. Now that's the first dimension of prayer, honesty. The second 
is remembrance. And here I'm looking at verses 5 to 6. And here we learn that prayer requires divine help. Now by the end of verse 4, David's spirit is faint, which means that it's without strength, and his heart is appalled, which means that he's without any ability to respond. Yet as we come to verse 5, we see a drastic change in tone. Now look with me to verse 5. I'm going to read it for us. David says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. Now, what's happening here? David is starting to preach to himself. This is not nostalgia. This is not David saying to himself, Wow, I remember those good old days. So shook. I wish I could go back to those happier times. That's not, that's not what David is doing. David is recollecting. He's reminding He's rehearsing. He's trying to rejuvenate his soul by remembering what God has done for him. And he's not just looking at what God has done in his own life. He's looking at what God has done in history. How he created the world. How he chose Abraham. How he used Jacob. How he raised Moses. How he rescued the Israelites from Egypt. And how he gave Joshua the victory. How he delivered the wicked Israelites through judges. like Samson, Deborah, Gideon. Uh, a picture of what David is doing here is like his heart is shutting down, but then he, he grabs this dosage of adrenaline and he just pumps it into his veins. It's a picture of his heart failing and it's like he's got a defibrillator and he's jump-starting his own heart. This is what preaching the gospel to yourself looks like. As you wake up in the morning, you find that the first thing that happens is that your anxieties and your fears, they greet you and they start filling your mind and your heart and you start wondering what's going to happen with my job, how about my health, what about my family, how bad is the economy today, my wedding, how, my children's spiritual life, how, 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 how. But then you respond and you say, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. My name is written on His hands. My name is graven on on his heart i know that while in heaven he stands no tongue can bid me thence depart you begin to sing to your soul it is well it is well with my soul Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. You begin to preach the gospel to yourself. This is who my Savior is. This is what he's done for me. I'm okay. Things are going to be fine. I, uh, he is for me. I can trust him. He has a plan for me. His ways are good. And then as your heart starts to shift, you start coming before the Father and asking, Lord, what would you have me do today? Lord, who can I pray for? How can I be a blessing this day? 
And just like David, you preach the gospel to yourself and you revive your soul. And I believe that singing songs plays a big part in this process. Now, we're really going to miss singing together, but I want to encourage you to sing all the more in the privacy of your home, whether it's in your morning devotions, whether you're in the shower, wherever you are, sing. I've been doing a lot of that in these past two weeks, and it's been so helpful in keeping my soul alive. Now, I recently got to learn that Sovereign Grace Music has put together a special playlist on Spotify called Songs to Sing in a Pandemic. So it features songs from various places and yeah, it, it might be helpful for you personally. I've also enjoyed this album, The Prayers of the Saints, and I found it particularly helpful. Uh, the songs there have led me to cry out to God, how long, O Lord, and to say to Him, we look to you and to keep me hopeful in Christ and His return. Now, I understand that not all of you would enjoy these kinds of songs. Uh, that's fine. My point is keep singing. Revive your soul by reminding yourself of your great God as you sing. Now coming back to David, one of the things I find most surprising about verse 5 is how David finds the strength to preach to himself. I mean, if you've been following with me, his, his soul was fainting. His heart was frozen with shock. How was he able to start preaching to himself? Now, is this a result of years and years of discipline? Yes, possibly. I do find that there is a kind of spiritual muscle memory. And so when you're be, you've been regularly preaching the gospel to yourself and troubled times come, there is a knee-jerk reaction that happens within you and you, you automatically, instinctively start reminding yourself of the gospel. But I feel that this goes beyond discipline. This is divine assistance at work in David's life. This is God who's working in David. David is not alone. And this is true for us also. Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus tells us about the Holy Spirit in John 14. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And not only is God always with us, God is in Christ is praying for us even now. And the Bible is not ashamed to say this. This is my personal favorite from Hebrews 7. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. The Bible is not ashamed to say that, that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. So here's the truth I want to bring to you. Prayer is not only our way of asking for help. Prayer is God's way of telling us that we are already being helped. Prayer is God's way of telling us we are being helped. Now don't think it is a small thing when you actually get down to prayer. Now prayer is not simply you making good decisions with your time. Prayer is the evidence that he who is in us is greater than him who is in the world. Prayer is God fighting for you. Prayer is God's way of making you aware that he's always been with you, that he's been helping you this whole time. And so David, with the strength that God provides, he begins to preach to his own soul. And as he does so, he responds with verse 6. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. 
David has received the defibrillator that pumped to his weakened heart. And with newfound life, he begins to reach out to God. Now, there's also a warning in here for us Agapians in verse 6. We are a church that strives for theological depth. And that's, that's one of our core values. However, there's also a danger that comes with that. Sometimes what happens is that when trouble strikes, we stretch out our hands, not to God, but to our theology. We look for explanations. We try to make sense of what is going on. We receive comfort from certain truths. And then we just carry on with life. This is dangerous. What David does with his theology is that he allows it to propel him to reach out to God. His theology leads him to seek God to quench his thirst. However, our problem is that we like to compartmentalize, right? So on one hand, in this COVID-19 season, we think being a Christian means having answers to questions like, why would God allow evil and suffering? Questions like, does sickness come from God or the devil? Uh, is it right for Christians to continue to gather together on Sunday mornings or stay at home? And then we get our answers. We find ourselves relatively satisfied and then we just carry on. And this is possible because many of us are not satisfying our souls with God, but with other sources. I imagine that there's one group of us who tries to satisfy our thirst in this time, uh, our insecure souls, our thirsty, insecure souls, and we try to satisfy it by drinking nonstop from the news. What is happening? What's the government doing? How long will it uh, take for things to settle down? What, to, what, what can we expect will happen next? And so on and so forth. We keep updated. We keep abreast. And while that fuels anxieties and places a burden on us, uh, we bear with it. Because by staying informed, we feel in control. We feel like we know what's going to happen. And so we satisfy our minds with theology, but we satisfy our hearts with a false sense of control. I imagine there's also another group of us who tries to satisfy our thirsty, insecure souls at this time by drinking non-stop from entertainment. We plunge ourselves into games, shows, movies, social media, video after video, hours upon hours and upon hours. It's the first thing in the morning. It's the last thing before you go to bed. And now working from home also means that you have the opportunity to binge watch throughout the course of the day. And what you, what's happening to us is that we are distracting ourselves from reality we are numbing our hearts to the point that we don't feel very much at all and so we satisfy our minds with some theology but we satisfy our hearts with a false sense of comfort and so verse 6 is a warning stretch out your hands to god every time you want to check the news take that impulse as a reminder to reach out to god Every time you want to watch another episode, walk away and spend time in prayer before Him. But I want to tell you something else. While we were busy wrestling with our idols, while we were giving in to them again and again, Jesus has been praying for us. And God the Father, He is answering the prayers that Jesus has been praying for us. Now, what is Jesus praying for us from heaven? I imagine his prayers would sound something like this. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And Jesus is praying for unity among all of us. What else is he praying? 
I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus is praying that we would remain faithful wherever we are and that Satan would not have his way with us. What else? Jesus is praying, may they be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and that you love them even as you loved me. Jesus is praying that we would be united not only with each other, but perfectly united with God so that he may be glorified and so that the love of God for us becomes clear to all people, to the glory of our great God's name. So even in our struggle to pray, there is actually divine assistance at work in our lives. We have Jesus who lives to intercede for us. He never fails. And during this COVID-19 season, our Father has already set his mind on answering the prayers of Jesus for us, even in such a time as this. And I believe one of the ways the Father is going to answer Jesus' prayers is by leading us to pray. And he's going to lead us to pray like never before. And so over the course of this week, when you find yourself praying more and more, rejoice. Rejoice because this is a beautiful sign that God is at work in you. He is already helping you. Now, this is the second dimension of prayer. And what we learn is remembrance. Now, we come to the third dimension, which is desperation. And here, I want to, I want to lead us to understand that prayer is warfare. At the end of verse 6, there is this word, selah. And what it likely indicates is that there is meant to be a short pause after this verse. Now, how does David resume after this short pause? Look with me now to verse 7. David says, Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Now, strangely enough, despite all of David's remembering in verse 5 and his reaching out to God in verse 6, it seems that the situation has gotten worse rather than better for David. David cries out to God, God, why are you silent? Lord, why is my soul, my soul still failing? Father, why are you still absent and so far away? I'm going to die. Help me. And this is the sound of desperation. Here in verse 7, we are reminded that prayer doesn't make everything better. Prayer sometimes is twice as frustrating. Because on one hand, when you pray, it seems like you're doing nothing productive. And yet on the other hand, sometimes prayer itself doesn't make us feel any different. And we all know what that's like. So then the question is, what's the point of prayer? Since David prayed so hard up to verse 6 and nothing happened, why bother praying verse 7? Why not just curl up in a corner and just wait for death? David still prays because prayer is warfare. We still continue to pray when nothing changes because prayer is wrestling with our sinful fleshly selves. Prayer is how we struggle against the forces of darkness. Ephesians 6.12 tells us that our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the spiritual forces of evil. Prayer is how we declare that our dependence is on God and God alone. Prayer is not merely some kind of God-ordained therapy. 
right, where you vent all your emotional baggage before God and you have a good cry and then you feel all better. No, neither is prayer just some kind of a magic ritual where we need to utter the right words, inject the right amount of charisma and faith and force and pow, we get what we are asking for. The reason we pray is because we believe in God. And prayer is simply our truest expression of our faith in Him. And so as long as we have faith in God, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, it applies to us. It tells us, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Keep praying. Don't stop praying. Even when your prayer sounds as sad and pathetic as David's in verse 7, keep praying. And the truth here is that all prayer is warfare. All prayer is warfare. Every time you cry out to God, every time you turn your attention to Him, instead of the pessimism and the despair, instead of the circumstances, instead of what's on the news, instead of what, uh, what immediate gratification the world offers you, every time you turn to Him, you are fighting. And even prayers as hopeless and desperate as, when David, as what David prays in verse 7, that already is warfare. Sometimes people have this view of warfare prayer like, you know, it has to be a certain way. But in reality, it's, it's not about whether you address Satan and renounce his evil works. It's not about how many times or how forcefully you say, in Jesus' name. It's not about how angry, how fired up, how pumped up you feel. It's not about what spirit you can cast out or what sin you can bind. Warfare is as simple as saying to God, Lord, I need you. Help me. That's warfare. Also, when we look at the New Testament, when we look at Jesus' ministry, we find some of the most pathetic and desperate requests being made to Jesus. Short little Zacchaeus, he climbs a sycamore tree to get Jesus' attention. Two blind men follow Jesus around, crying, Lord, have mercy on the son of David, while the rest of the crowd shushes them. A Gentile woman desperately bargains with Jesus for her daughter's healing. And she willingly humiliates herself by acknowledging that she is like a mere dog eating scraps under a table. All of these people were desperate. All of these people had no power. Even worse, all of them faced strong opposition. Yet in their own weak, feeble and pathetic ways, they brought their cries for mercy before Jesus. And they received the victory. Why? Was it because they were so great? Because they were so persistent? No. Because the one they were praying to is great. Because the one they were praying to held all the power, all the victory in his hands. And in the same way, especially in this COVID-19 season, we pray without ceasing. We bring our big fears before God. We bring our small anxieties before him. We pray, God, protect my children as they go to school. And we also pray, Lord, help me find this specific brand of bread at the supermarket later. We bring our prayers in great faith and we bring our prayers when we lack much faith. Hallelujah! Glorify yourself through me this day, O God. Amen. And yet at the same time, Lord, help me get out of bed. I can't get up to face yet another day. Pray. Pray and fight. All prayer is warfare. That's the third dimension, desperation. Now I come to the fourth, which I call assertion doesn't seem to be responding. Assertion. And here we look at verses 8 to 11. Prayer is wrestling with God's goodness. 
Now verse 7 is David's highest point of desperation in his prayer. David ends verse 7 on a very pitiful note. He says, Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Now basically David is saying, Show me favor or I die. And this reveals that deep desperation, that sense of hopelessness that David had at that time. But when we come to verse 8 and, and up to verse 11, the language shifts. Now, David is still desperate. He's still unsure. But now he's bringing God's goodness into his prayer. Now, would you read verses 8 to 11 alongside with me? Verse 8. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. Now, a lot has changed in the way David is now praying. When you look at verse 7, and if you remember that last line of verse 7, it is super negative, right? David says, do not, which is already like a negative instruction, do not hide your face, which is also negative, hiding your face, because I will die, which is very negative. And so David could have said it in a more positive way. He could have said, show me your face, O God, and I will surely live. That's a very positive way of framing it. But in the depths of his despair, even David's prayers, he frames them negatively. And like what I mentioned earlier, that's okay. God receives that. God welcomes that. But when we come to verse 8, everything changes. David says, let me hear, which is a positive instruction, your steadfast love, love, positive as well. For in you, I trust, also a positive assertion. Now, David could have said in a more negative way, do not silence your love, for without you, I am going to be lost. Right? That is negative, negative, negative. It, and it has kind of the same meaning, but the feel to it in that negative form is more dark and heavy. And it's completely different from what David is trying to say in verse 8. And the thing is that David doesn't just do this one time. He does this seven times by the time we read to the end of verse 11. What happened to David? Now, here's what I think. You see, in verse 7, David is wrestling with God's will. He wants to be delivered so badly, but God is God. You can't force God to do something that he doesn't want to do. And we know what that's like, right? We sincerely want something, but we wonder if God will actually answer us uh, and give us what we want because we know his ways are higher, his plans are higher, and he looks at a very big cosmic picture. And so during this season, we might pray, Lord, end this COVID-19 season quickly. But then you, you come to him and say, oh, but you know, God, if you're using this season to bring many people to faith, uh, you're bringing about much good, then it's okay, lah, you know, uh, have your way. You know, let your will be done. And in verse 7 though, David is way too desperate to pray that kind of neither here nor there prayer. He wants to make the stakes very clear to God. God, if you don't help, I am dead. But from verse 8 onwards, here's what I think. The nature of his relationship with God, it suddenly hits him. He suddenly awakened to what it means that he is in covenant with God. This is definitely the hand of God at work in David's life at that very moment. 
The word used in verse 8 for steadfast love, it actually refers to God's hazard love, His loyal, unchanging, covenantal love that is specifically shown to His people. In the verses after, David continues to anchor his hopes, his cries for mercy upon the character of Yahweh, the covenantal God. And every statement is like an assertion of God's goodness. Now, an assertion means to forcefully declare something. And so in verse 9, David forcefully declares, God is good. He is Yahweh. He is my refuge. Therefore, He will deliver me. In, my, in the first part of verse 10, David asserts, God is good. He is Elohim. He is my righteous judge. Therefore, He will show me what is right in His eyes. And then David forcefully declares, God is good. His Holy Spirit is good. He does not seek my harm. Therefore, He will lead me into safety. In the first part of verse 11, David asserts, God is good. He is Yahweh. Therefore, He will preserve my life for the sake of His covenantal name. Then finally, David forcefully declares, God is good. He is righteous. He does what is right. Therefore, He will bring me out of trouble. David realized that being in covenant with God means that he has a privileged position before God. He could be assured that God would be good to him. And so as he prays, he realizes that he wasn't struggling with God's sovereignty. He was struggling with God's goodness. He wasn't struggling with God's sovereignty. He was struggling with God's goodness. Now, David would have known that it was God who chose the people of Israel out of all the nations and families of the earth. God was the one who had decided to make a big deal out of the Israelites. He not only called the Israelites his holy people, God even called the nation of Israel his son. David must have remembered that this was how specially favored he was because he was in covenant with God. And it's the same with us today. We are God's covenant people. But more than just his children, the Bible declares that we are the bride of Christ. Jesus gave himself up for us so that he might sanctify us, having cleansed us by the washing of water with the word. He intends to present us to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemished. We are the ones that Jesus nourishes and cherishes. To say that Jesus loves us like a man loves his wife, that is to get the analogy completely mixed up. It's upside down. Rather, when we see a man who truly loves his wife, it's right there that we get a picture, a glimpse, a taste, an idea, a sampling of how much Jesus loves us, his bride. And so here's the truth I want to leave us with. Ask boldly. He is your beloved. Ask boldly. You are his beloved. Sorry, yeah. Either way, it's fine. He is your beloved. You are his beloved. Yeah. Now, in this COVID-19 season, if you've been thinking of yourself primarily as an insignificant human being, you know, you're just a statistic waiting to happen, or you're simply a helpless Singaporean just following procedures and guidelines and so on, that I want you to realize with David that you are far more valuable to your covenantal God than you realize. Trust in your bridegroom. He will surely respond to you with goodness. You are his beloved. 
Now that was assertion, the fourth dimension. Now we come to the final dimension, which is submission. Here we look at the final verse and it teaches us that prayer is resting in God. Now we come to the final verse and here David prays and would you look with me at verse 12. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul for I am your servant. Now, as you've been following along, you would have realized that throughout this entire prayer, David never once prayed for the destruction of his enemies. It is only here in this final verse that David finally goes on the offensive and he commits the destruction of his enemies to God. But it's strange, right? How in this entire psalm, David has been praying for God to save him. Save me, O oh God. Save me. Save me. But it's only at the end that David prays for the destruction of his enemies. Now, that seems a little silly, right? Perhaps David was so busy asking God to save him that it never occurred to him. Actually, if his enemies are destroyed, he would no longer need to be saved. Sometimes we are also like that, aren't we? We are praying for God that we would keep our jobs, that you would save us from the virus, that you'd help this church stay together and all, so on and so forth. And we forget that what we really need is for the virus to come to an end quickly. But if we think a bit more, we realize that we, what we really need is the end to all viruses, not just COVID-19. And if we think a bit more, uh, we realize we want an end to all kinds of suffering. And we think a bit more and realize that we want an end to all kinds and all sources of grief. We want an end to death itself. And now as Christians, we know that there's only one way that death comes to an end, that sorrow comes to an end, that suffering and sickness comes to an end. It is only when Jesus returns. It is only when Jesus returns. I think many of us have mixed emotions about Jesus coming. But I think it takes a season of pain and suffering like this one for many of us to make up our minds and to come before God and with all our hearts cry out, Come, Lord Jesus, come. We can't take it anymore. We want you. We don't want this world. And so here's a principle I want you to take with you into your prayer life. Pray with the end close to your heart. As you hear the news of the deaths and infection rates spiking, as you hear of the economy worsening, nations closing down their borders, as you hear of an increasing lack of equipment and the healthcare workers, and as you hear of increasing distrust and fear, don't just be praying for a vaccine. Let the full cry of mercy come forth. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Now, that was the final dimension of prayer that God is teaching us from Psalm 143. I'm not going to run through those five points again, but what I want you to do right now is that I want you to stretch out your hand in front of you and then to ball your hand into a fist. All right, stretch out your hand in front of you and ball into a fist. Now, I, I sense in my spirit that many of you uh, are not doing this right now. You've not put out your, your hand in front of you. I'm I'm sure there are deep spiritual doubts that you have about having your fist in front of you, uh, and, but humor me, all right? I just want to leave you with a tool to help you remember what Psalm 143 is about. Now, with your fist in front of you, would you stick out your thumb, right? Have your thumb facing upwards. Now, this here is our first dimension. Prayer is founded on the good news. 
right? Uh, the only reason we can pray at any time and be invited to pray in any place, in whatever situation and, and what, what kind of a, a state we are in, is because Jesus has reconciled us to the Father. Prayer is founded on the good news. Now stick out your index finger. And again, I want you to point it upwards. Okay, point it upwards. This is our second dimension. Prayer requires divine assistance. The only reason you and I are going to pray at all is because Jesus is praying for us right now in the heavenly places. Even before we ask for help, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all already at work for our sake. All right, don't hear this much in church, but get that middle finger up. All right, I want to get, get your hand into the shape of a gun. All right, I think this is the clearest of them all probably, right? This is your third dimension, prayer. All prayer is warfare. All prayer is warfare. Even your most desperate prayers, they are volleys of attack against the forces of evil and against your sinful flesh. Now put up your fourth finger. All right, the fourth finger is often called the ring finger. And with this, remember, you are Jesus' bride. So ask boldly because you are his beloved. You are invited to pray. He loves you. He has covenanted himself to you. You can expect his goodness towards you. So pray boldly. Now finally, put up that little finger, that final finger. And this here is the final dimension. Pray with the end close to your heart. While you continue to ask to be saved in all kinds of ways and in this season, let's never forget to pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Bring an end to all this wicked and heinous in this world. All right, so once more, the thumb, prayer is founded on good news. The index finger, prayer requires divine assistance. The middle finger, prayer, all prayer is warfare. The ring finger, ask boldly, you are his beloved. And the final finger, pray with the end close to your heart. Now I'm teaching you this not to be funny or to be clever or as a kind of gimmick or whatever. This is meant to be an encouragement for you as you pray. God is calling us to prayer. And today he's taught us from his word to pray and how to go about praying also. And so may these little reminders go a long way in your prayer life. Let's come before the Lord right now in prayer.